A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Hi, Family Secrets listeners. It's Danny here to share a bit of exciting news with you before today's episode. We just found out that our podcast is a nominee for the Webby People's Voice Award in the category of Best Series. This is a huge honor, and honestly, it puts a spring in my step as I walk alone each day down into my basement to record my conversations with my amazing guests. Podcasts can be a bit like the sound of a tree falling in a forest. You know, is anyone listening? Does it really exist? So here's the thing. This is the People's Voice Award, so you get to vote. It would mean so much if you'd go to vote.webbyawards.com and cast your vote for Family Secrets. Thank you so much for hearing me out. I love you guys. Now, on with today's episode. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. My guest today is Emma Ramos, actress, comedian, and writer. Emma has an important story to tell, and her telling of it is brave. After all, she was told that if she ever spoke of it, she could be risking her life and the lives of her loved ones. But secrets only accumulate power when they stay silent and dormant. Here's Emma. 
I grew up in Culiacán, Sinaloa, Mexico. That's in the northwest of Mexico. That city, unfortunately, has really bad rep. You could see it briefly in movie Collateral with Tom Cruise. It's well known for its narco culture. To me, it was really well known for its beautiful sunsets. Uh, this is one of the cities in Mexico that actually is awarded for its beautiful sunsets. So I grew up middle class, and uh, I would say in the 90s in this town, there was this thriving drug cartel that was out around the families who grew up there for generations. Very conservative, staunch Catholics, very proud people that had their honorable jobs, but this political and corrupted system was happening around. And I grew up in the middle of all of that. What did that feel like? And was there a sense that there was danger, that you were in danger? I mean, how did how did that play out in your family? I would say that parents from my community um, need a million awards from middle classes because it's a constant, like, distracting your kids and trying to make it as if nothing is happening. I, I say that women from my hometown, because women are in charge of, you know, taking care of, of the kids and men go to work. It's very, very 1920s still. They would distract us and they would, you know, filled our afternoons with toys and school would be very, I would say, normal. But, I, for example, in the middle of class, there would could be a gun shooting. I learned the word al suelo from school. Our teachers taught us to go to the ground whenever there was a gun shooting happening outside. And I learned how to distract myself while danger was happening because it's kind of a second nature. You build this muscle of being completely out of your control. So I would kind of like look to my friends while I was laying on the floor and make them laugh while, you know, just to distract ourselves while it happened. And then it, we would go back to school. You know, like there was no discussion. I would say like that could happen also. You could be at church and there could be a squeeze of a gun shooting between a hallelujah and an amen. <laughs> but then the, the math would keep going and we would have in the dichotomy of being part of that community is that conversations outside while that was happening had nothing to do with that world. Women were preoccupied with, you know, beauty pageants or what were they wearing or like, you know, that when was the next quince for the girls or the first communion. And everything was very much connected to being good with God and being a, a good girl. That was kind of how you made your parents and your grandparents proud, you know, good grades and being a good girl meant that you would be leaning into those feminine things. And if you were a boy, well, you need to be brave because you are going to be someone who's going to take care of women. In the world of Emma's childhood, there was a strict delineation between the roles of boys and men and the roles of girls and women. An undercurrent of danger ran through their daily lives, such a part of the fabric of their community that it went without saying. It just was. So is it fair to say that 
the men and the boys were the ones who were more sort of hyper aware of the dangers and of protecting the girls and the women from those dangers? Yes. Now looking back, I have a lot more compassion really for for men because it was inherent that they would have to take that responsibility whether they want it or not. It was part of being a man. They would be part of those conversations. They would be the ones who, you know, if there was any need to defend their work, and I would say defend their work because um, in this system, whatever kind of job you had, you would have to negotiate with, you know, that other corrupted system. Example, you would have to pay a certain amount of your income to these people just for them to leave you alone. And if not, if you would try to be, if you were that guy, I have a friend whose brother tried to, you know, to just defy that reality and was murdered. So that would be kind of the, the process, right? But because women were meant to stay at home, that was the way that men would protect them. Tell me about your parents. Tell me about your mother first. My mother is someone that I hear these stories since I was a baby that she wanted to study literature when she was a kid, but she couldn't. She couldn't go to Mexico City to study literature because she had to decide and start a family. She started her family when she was 21. She was very young. She's um, the second of six kids. And she grew up very quickly because of the same, she became a mom at a young age and she couldn't continue studying. And her entire life and happiness was about making her home as beautiful as possible, as perfect as possible. She takes a lot of pride in not talking about violence and not talking about the ugly stuff, how she calls it. She's also very, very proud of the way she copes with life. In fact, before this conversation, Danny, I would just wanted to double check things with her just to see if my memory was right. And uh, she has this thing where she purposely forgets. She tells me that she doesn't remember things that she doesn't want to remember. And that's the way she just chooses to be happy. Every day she chooses to be happy. And that's why certain moments and certain pictures go to the trash and we act like it didn't happen. And that's the way I, I respect her life, yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting, Emma, because like really one of the predominant themes in this podcast is that what you just described your mother doing is actually impossible. Like you can't just decide not to remember something or secrets go into corners or things that we don't remember that we choose not to remember. They kind of stay there in a way. They never completely disappear. So it's just, it's so interesting. I mean, I can completely understand someone doing that. I mean, especially in circumstances where the way you're describing it, it sounds like your family and your whole community were so surrounded by, you know, things that were really frightening and encroaching and threatening. Yes. And I'd say that there's something strange about sharing this with you. There's a, there's a thing about language also that I, I have to be aware that I, I feel like the, because I'm sharing this in English, I am sort of protecting them because if I would say it in Spanish and if they would understand what I'm saying, they would be very annoyed. They would feel that I am 
kind of ill-mannered by just exposing something that's not good about where I was from, right? There is a misunderstanding of being grateful. And they build this quilt of emotions. And um, that's why I feel sometimes hesitant to even share realities. But I, I, I find certain anecdotes so telling. For example, I remember this during Christmas. She was the one in charge of buying all the presents because my dad would make the money and she would do the, the, the house things, which involved being Santa. So uh, there was this particular Christmas, she went to the supermarket, had all the gifts in her car, and then two kidnappers approach her with guns, you know, like pointing at her head. They would just kind of like uh, wanted to kidnap her and like, like steal the car and steal the gifts and God knows what they were going to do with her. So she runs outside, she tries like to negotiate with them, screaming, and just she ran back to the supermarket. So these guys just stole the car with my, with the toys. But when she talks about it, what I find fascinating is that what she remembers the most is that when she was hiding behind the counter, filled with fear, she would look at the supermarket floor and she noticed that it was dirty. So she's like, that floor was so dirty. And I was distracted by like all the dirtiness and all the hair that was on the floor. And that was happening while like the cashier said, we need to call her husband. So now the superhero and the savior came, which is dad, right? Which is another human being who gets a call that his wife, you know, just dealt with that. And he has to come and save her. And we as kids receiving, I know this story now as an adult, but back then I couldn't, I didn't know what happened. I just, I just remember seeing mom coming back from who knows where and just shutting down and not telling us anything. And then, you know, I, I believe that Christmas we, they organized somehow getting our toys. But I find that detail for some reason so telling of the women from my city. Well, yeah. I mean, you're describing this amazing coping mechanism. It's not that different from the way you described telling jokes and making, making people laugh during school when you had to, what was the word, when you had to go down on the floor? Al suelo, when we had Al to suelo. go down, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're down there and, ma- and making people laugh and sort of doing what you can do to not be thinking about what is actually happening. And your mother in the supermarket is looking at the floor and the dirt and the grime, and it's sort of what she can do to not be completely freaking out about what just had happened to her. We don't decide what our coping mechanisms will be. We don't get to choose, oh, I'll be the funny one, or I'll focus on the small detail to avoid seeing the big picture. Some coping mechanisms are healthy, and others are self-destructive. Whatever they are, they're an attempt to control an uncontrollable environment. And when it comes to Emma's father, all he wants to do is keep his family safe in an unsafe place. And he has a lot of very strong ideas about the way his kids, Emma is one of three, should live their lives. Tell me about your father. My father is a beautiful man, a very sensitive human being that was never allowed to explore his feminine side. He works 
in the agricultural business. He inherited this land that was like from, you know, many generations before him. So kind of also his story was written for him before he could say anything. I saw that that was only for women, but I think, you know, I think for men too. My father is also very proud to share like the same values that my mom has to prioritize family. So just, you know, his biggest moment of happiness is to be with his kids. I think he imagined that, you know, working and giving us everything. Vestido casa y sustento, he would say. Like, you know, like he would take care of our clothing, our house needs, and our education. Education was something huge. But I'm from that generation that the internet happened. So I don't think they could plan that I was going to have access to so much information when they invested on the best education they could. So I think that dad, I clearly remember graduating from college, having all these dreams where I would see finally that we had in Mexico at the time only one female senator. And I remember meeting her, Josefina Vasquez Mota, and being so connected to her thinking and reading Isabel Allende and understanding that there was a way in which women could also vent their truth and would be paid for it. And um, coming back home and telling dad that I, I would want to pursue that and him being extremely confused and afraid that that meant that I would not learn how to cook because I've never learned how to cook. I, I can't cook anything. Uh, but his advice would be, you should start to learn how to cook because that's what's next. You know, like you have the best education, therefore you are connected to this group of people. Thank God I did everything so you could be safe while growing up. And please don't be a disappointment and just give me more heart attacks while you're still outside in the world without being protected from and by a man. So I think that that where our, our relationship started having a lot of conflicting uh, conversations based on his idea of how should I continue my life and my impetus of just responding to a call, which was to keep exploring and asking questions and, and make money for myself. It's so interesting the way that the internet really does play a role in so many of these stories that you ended up being exposed to your aperture was open so much wider to the possibilities that were available to you as a young woman than they might have been without the advent of the internet when you were growing up. Yeah. We'll be right back. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is he breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. So Emma hustles. She has big dreams. She goes to college, graduates early. She's smart, talented, well-liked, and ends up with a good job in public relations in Mexico City. She works during the day and is even studying for her master's degree at night. 
Tell me what happened about 15 years ago, one evening when you were on your way from work to your classes. So now knowing that dad was not happy about me continuing and pushing to be the next senator in Mexico. (laughs) But even if we fight, he loves me. So he allowed for me to work on this job in Mexico City. One of those things where I, I got away with pursuing my career, but obviously I had to call dad every Saturday and like all of this mechanics around having him at ease that his little girl was, you know, doing the right thing and just working and balancing the fact that I wanted to be this superwoman, to simplify that term. So while I was doing that, being a superwoman at that time. And you're how old? I'm 21 at the time. I was truly, truly young to have this position at the company as a director and also studying my first master's. Kind of my mind was in that, you know, drinking that juice, that there was a possibility of young women being parts of politics and doing something for themselves other than just being there because they were women, they were pretty or whatever men thought that we were. Men from my generation would say that I got that far in my profession because I was pretty and I would be so livid. So with that thrive and anger, that's why I was like, I will keep studying. And my focus was like, first this master's, then the PhD. And Mexico City, this was the time where Fox was president. And I just mentioned him because when we say Mexico is a dangerous country, it's just so general. It's not. It's really, it's like any other country. It really depends on the moment in politics. We had a president for the first time from a different party. Mexico is a country who had 71 years free was governing, which would be the equivalent of the, you know, Republicans. And then we had folks for the first time. So the political temperature and violence of the city was different. That's why there were certain things called express kidnaps. An express kidnap has nothing to do with being the daughter of a mogul or an ambassador. It's a method of abduction in which a victim is targeted abducted, often violently, and held captive for a quick, small ransom, either from the victim's family, employer, or most often, ATM machines. I usually, to go to school, would take a site taxi to be cautious. But that day, I believe I had an exam or something, and the traffic was like impossible. So I took a cab from the street, which you shouldn't. But my focus was in becoming the next senator, so, so I had to go. I had to go to class. Um, so as soon as I got into the car, I'm giving you these details just to paint the picture of how distracted and focused I was. So kind of like how my mind delayed a lot of the things that happened. Kind of I absorbed them in a delay because I was on the phone still dealing with my job. And I had in my hands um, paperwork from school. So I was kind of focusing and trying for the cab to just get me to school. And as soon as I hop on a, inside the cab, two men stepped in. And it kind of, because I was still on the phone and I couldn't, I couldn't understand, I felt that they were, they were pointing at me and there was a cacophony of um, a lot of 
fear, I, I would say, in these guys' voices. They were screaming commands and they were screaming things because I wasn't moving. I couldn't understand what was happening. So I would say that after two minutes of understanding what was happening, then I look down and I see that there were guns pointing um, at my ribs. They were touching my ribs on both sides. I looked at the cab driver and the cab driver acted as if he was a victim, but they are part of the whole thing. So then I understood what was happening. And then kind of there was a moment where I felt that I was out of my body because all of this, the next moves happened so quickly. The guy on my left took my necklace. The guy on my right opened my bag and took my phone and took all of my ID and everything I had inside my bag. So I remember that he was addressing me by my name and he would say my address. And unfortunately, the way IDs work in Mexico, you will always, I will always have, this is another caveat of patriarchy. I will always have my parents' address on my ID until I get married. Then I will have the address of whoever I marry, whatever home I move to. So the fact that they were saying out loud my parents' address and my name, and they, they start saying that if I moved, that I was going to be murdered, and they would be like, this is how it's going to go down. They start explaining to you um, that they're going to stop at different ATMs. You have to give them the, the, the nip, uh, and they would take the largest amount of money and if you cry, they will kill you. If you if you scream, if you try to do anything. So they, they start attacking you with all these words. So you become so small and your fear, you know, inhabits you of any emotion. And I remember I started praying. <laughs> I started praying, praying and praying and praying. Holy Father in Spanish, like a mantra. I could not stop praying. I couldn't believe what was happening. They stopped at three different ATMs. I stupidly had three cards with me, something that you shouldn't do. As this is going, I would say that this is happening with Mexico's traffic. It's like the next two hours, right? It takes more or less two hours. And they're driving around and they, I remember being inside the cab and all of a sudden right next to us, there was a, you know, a police officer. And we had to act. I remember having one of the guy's arm holding me and I have to act as if we were, you know, just three friends driving somewhere. It's terrifying and claustrophobic even listening to this. Can you imagine what it must have been like inside that car? These violent, out-of-control, dangerous men have Emma's name, her family's address, and guns in her ribs. She can't signal a police officer. She's completely, utterly trapped. But then, her coping mechanisms begin to kick in. At that point, I don't know how, but thankfully, being two hours with these two individuals, three individuals, if I count the cab driver, but I was focusing on the guys with the gun, I started clocking their energy and their frequency if that makes sense it's just like i would say like they're like one was a little kinder than the other and i thought to myself i have to convince them of not raping me i just have to convince them i am going to convince them of not to rape me 
So I started talking to what I called the good one, the good guy, which is the guy on my left. The guy on my right, which was the bad guy, would go outside and get the money from the ATM. And the guy on my left, I started just engaging and looking at his eyes. And every time the guy on my right would hop outside and get the money, I would talk to him and I would look straight to his eyes and be like, I know you have a sister. I know you have a mother. There's someone, a girlfriend, someone in your life looks like me. Look at my eyes. Put her in my eyes. Look at my eyes. Put her in my eyes. You don't, like, it's okay. You've raped enough women. It's okay. It's just going to be this one. I swear to God, with this one that you let go. So I started kind of trying to make him see me as someone he likes, he loves. He would have compassion towards. And I don't know if this makes sense to you, but, and this is very physical. I think that this is very physical because I would feel the guns, the way it just pushed my ribs. For the guy in the left, the metal or whatever it was made with started having a little bit more ease. So I would I would say to myself, okay, so at least this guy maybe is going to help me out when the time comes. Because the nature of this is once they take all the money, then they move to a different place, which is they go outside the city and that's where it happens. So with the last guy, he got upset because he couldn't take money from the last ATM. So he starts yelling. He starts yelling and he starts getting really annoyed and saying really horrible things. That's what he was going to do to me. And I don't know wh where I found this strength, but I just fought him back with the same level of my voice. And I just screamed back at him and I said, do not be an idiot. This is my nip. Just press it correctly. Just press it again. And this is my nip, right? So I just fought back <laughs> and kind of gained his respect for just fighting back. So Emma screams and fights, which is amazing enough that she's operating on such an intuitive level that she knows what to do in the midst of a life-threatening situation. But then she takes it to the next level. Remember the way as a kid she used to make the other kids laugh when they were down on the floor dodging bullets? Emma deploys humor. She isn't a trained comedian, not yet, but she's funny and she uses it. So then as the time came of moving outside, um, I made this guy laugh by, you know, continuing this rhetoric. I knew that wherever in Mexico, whatever social class you come from, the one thing we have Mexicans in common is our belief in God. The Catholic system has done really horrible things and some great things, which is we all believe there when we die, we're going to go somewhere and we can be forgiven and we and the next life will be better. So with that story, I just told him and I was like, listen to me. My mom, and this is true, my mom is very religious. She's very connected with the Vatican. I'm going to, if you don't rape me, this is what I'm going to do. And I started just talking about how I was going to negotiate uh, a pass, a pass for him to, you know, to have a little, just like a, just like a Nintendo game, just to have a, a mushroom when you are playing Mario or whatever. I was like, I'm going to give you a point if you, if you let this one go. Um, so once he laughed and he basically said, listen, I've never, ever encountered anybody that has first talked back to me, secondly, made me laugh. So I'm just going to give you a chance. So they let me go. 
they said, okay, we're going to let you go, but remember, we have your address and your, your parents' address. Um, if you look back, we're going to still point a gun at you. So you're going to walk. You're going to have to count to 11. If you report us, they give you all these instructions. Um, we will come and murder you. So don't play funny. Da, 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 da. And don't forget to negotiate. Don't forget my point in the sky. So, so I walked and I counted. I think I counted to a thousand. my body because of the past three hours of just like holding this play for that you know like holding this story for them holding some sort of like fake strength was so 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 tight that finally I don't know where I was obviously I didn't have anything I didn't have a bag I didn't have a phone I, I don't know what neighborhood I was in um, I started bawling and a guy in the corner just saw me crying in the, in the corner and just he wanted to help and also that for me kind of I was still in shock so I couldn't trust anyone and I couldn't put you know words together because everything that I did not feel for the past three hours it came like it just hit my body so I couldn't couldn't stop crying and just feeling so 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 afraid I would say the next 20 minutes Danny I don't I kind of there are images that come back and forth of what actually happened the only thing I remember is that somehow there was a, a woman, an older woman, that she could put things together, what I was saying while crying. So she put me in a cab. She paid this cab driver to take me to my apartment in Mexico City. And that drive back home was when I had to make a choice. If I call my parents and tell them what happened, I would have to go back to my hometown. I would have to say goodbye to my grad school, to my life as a working woman in Mexico, to all of these things I would have to say goodbye. I would have to go back home. And my father, you know, I would have to ask for forgiveness basically on top of this because I was in Mexico City doing what I was doing because I said I could and this happened. So at that moment, the only thing I could do was rely on my roommates at the time and deal with my PTSD for my like by myself and just stay quiet. How did you deal with your PTSD on your own with no help? For the next week, I asked my roommates if I could sleep with them. I couldn't sleep by myself. I would wake up just just in shock. Um, I had a boyfriend at the time who was obviously furious and feeling so. He had no power to do anything because in these, in these cases, you couldn't report it to the police. Uh, the police was colluded on this. And, and, and that would have given another layer of danger if I would report it. And also he knew that if I told my parents, that would be the end of me seeing him also. So I would say that I, we would watch movies. That was the first time that I got was obsessed with Phyllis Timmer Hoffman. I think I watched every single Phyllis Timmer Hoffman movie. I, I watched Band of Brothers for the first time. I, anything that was like far away from my reality, I got. I was so into Seinfeld. I need like I was engaging in stories that were outside Mexico and like situations that were funny and different. And I kept working. I went back to work. I went back to work. Uh, I think I, I I missed work for the next three days, but I went back to work and I would just. I mean, obviously, this PTSD came, you know, like they, they were like three months after 
a friend um, was coming behind me and just say, hey, Emma, and just, I just couldn't. I just started screaming. Um, so I, I had radical reactions for the next month or so. But that's how I, I dealt with it. And I think that, that I became extremely resilient and, and that what doesn't kill me makes you funnier than <laughs> I just it just made me it just make me want to push more for faithiness and creating spaces for women to be free and to be safe to do what they want to do really. We'll be back in a moment with more family secrets. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy. 
but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to telling her family, Emma is in an impossible position. To tell means that she might be putting them in danger. To tell also means that she'll be curtailing her own life. Her protective father, who hadn't wanted her to work and live in Mexico City, will force her to come home and learn how to cook and run a household. So she lives with her PTSD and just pushes through, deals with it. Her life thus far has taught her to pay attention and do whatever it takes to get ahead. She hasn't considered whether she loves what she's doing. She's just trying to move forward. I think I've had delay reactions all over my life because of this way of growing up. And comedy and acting came as a delayed reaction because the propeller, the senator in me, was, and that was the only thing I knew back then that would give voice to my questions and my observations about injustice in the place where I lived. And the propeller and the path was set. That happened. And I kept going because that was the way to be involved. That was keeping me in the conversation. I was not benched. I was still in the game. I remember that uh, another job I had right before I decided to move to New York and become a, a comedian and an actress, um, I had another big job for the government in Mexico. And there was a delayed reaction to all of this because in one of these trips to New York, work trip to New York, I had at the time the money that none of my friends had because I, st I worked from a very early age because that was what my plan, my independence and my freedom was a priority for me. So I, I was economically solvent and I looked at myself in the mirror knowing that a lot of my male friends also envied my position. And yet I saw so much emptiness because I had to adjust my truth to be seen. And by adjusting my truth was this suit 
I had this Louis Vuitton <laughs> bag and these like, you know, like all the, the stilettos and all of these things I carried and I was like walking back and forth to the New York Stock Exchange and like, you know, all of this exterior persona that they taught me that that's how women are independent and that's how we have a voice. I could never say how I really felt. I also have worked my muscle of being invisible when I had to be invisible in order to keep a job. I knew that I got so far in the game because I knew how to play it. And the way how to play it is to navigate around who's in power and who's in power is these men at the time that had this need to accumulate wealth no matter what and to see women as props. So the decision to do what I do now truly, truly came as a need to have fun. I said to myself, I've done so much. Can I have recess now? I always say, like, I had a childhood of an adult, and now as an adult, I'm living like a child. Because I worked so hard for that. So many of us who become artists, writers, creatives of all kinds, come to this kind of crossroads, especially women. How do we become authentic, do what we love, find our own voices? Emma realized that empowerment didn't come in the form of expensive handbags and stiletto heels. True empowerment came in learning to fully inhabit her own self. I would never forget the first time I was walking to a play and I was like dancing in the morning and rehearsing and singing and sitting outside. This was at Soho Rep. So, you know, you know where Soho Rep is in New York City. It's not, it's, it's not the Ritz-Carlton, you know, it's a very small theater where rats probably are going to appear in one of your shows, well, the previous Soho Rep, not, not the one that is now. But I would feel this joy, this secrecy of like, I cannot believe that I have the privilege to enjoy myself and to just express these words where I feel them and I felt while living all of this, it came again as, a, as an afterthought, as a delayed reaction of all of this understanding that this privilege that I call is called coming from a patriarchal society and never having a chance to just be. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. It makes so much sense. And I can think of little that's more expressive than comedy, really. That ability to speak some sort of, like, truth so deep that it's funny or to make people laugh which is actually a through line in your whole in your whole story i mean you talk about that from the time that you're in grade school and then it saves you when you're in the car with the kidnappers yeah that just makes a lot of sense you were 21 when this attack happened this kidnapping how old were you when you made the move to new york i was 27 how old are you today 37 this year So for all these intervening years, Emma heeds the kidnapper's warning. She never tells her family. She never tells her parents. But then, during the COVID-19 pandemic, Emma returns to Mexico to quarantine with her family. Her father is ill, and she's there to take care of him. And the thing about secrets is, they have their own energy, even if it's years. 
decades, lifetimes, centuries. Eventually, they come out. I'm there as an adult trying to help my parents. This was in March. We knew even less that we know now. The only thing that we were certain was that this was attacking the elders. And I was there thinking, I'm here to do the groceries, to do all the things for my parents because I'm the young person. So this day, I grab the car keys and I'm just asking my mom, my dad, what else do we need? Do we need apples? Do we need a... And my dad, my dad looks at me and he's, he's like, where do you think you're going? I'm like, I'm going to do groceries today. He goes, you're not going with those shorts. You're not, you can't go with those short shorts. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it's, it's very hot. This is Culiacan. It's March and it's really hot. So I am going, I'm not putting pants. And yes, I'm going. That was the beginning of ooh, this fight where he would say, you're not going, I'm going to go. And I said, Dad, I'm here for the same reason. Let me go. I can't believe if you don't change your clothing and you're, you, you're not going to, you don't understand. You now think you're American and you go to all these women marches. And, and but here is Mexico. Here is different. And he starts getting very agitated. And I get very agitated, too, because I can't believe that he can't trust his grown-ass daughter to do groceries with, with shorts on. So I said to him, I was like, Dad, do you understand that I negotiated my way out of a rape? And you think that I cannot handle going outside with short shorts to bring you during a pandemic? Apples? There it is. The secret. Tumbling out. And, as so often happens, during an argument, at the worst possible moment. It was a disaster. Because, for both of us, there was a lot of things to combat. First of all, it wasn't right. It was the, not the right time for me to just, you know, shove that. It came out of just picking the most radical thing for, for him to hear what he was saying. That it, it made me furious that I still don't have independence in his eyes. And for him, he starts crying um, after saying that, uh, that I'm very ill-mannered and that he can believe that I don't respect my elders and all that. And after it, well, he was crying, which you have to imagine, this is a very proud Mexican dad. So I, I barely see him crying. So that was shocking too. So with tears in his eyes, he says to me, if something happens to you, at the supermarket, if you get kidnapped, I don't know what how I could handle, you know, being a dad and being a husband again. We stayed in that conversation for a long time. And, you know, he said things like, this pandemic is getting all guys horny because they can't go out. And I was like, what? but women do. I'm like, women do. And he doesn't want to hear that. I mean, from that extreme... To, to just coming together to agree on disagreeing. No matter if I dealt with that, no matter if I, he still thinks that I was very lucky because I was protected from God 
this has not this had nothing to do the fact that i wasn't raped the fact that i'm still alive had to do with god protecting me it had nothing to do with what i did <laughs> and i have to honor that i have because i don't know i mean that's i mean I, i told you i prayed i prayed a lot inside that cab so i feel like for the next 20 years i that's what i'm still dabbling with all this like mysticism and belief and god and like what is you and what is god really in terms of protection emma and her dad are likely never to see completely eye to eye about what happened in mexico city and the reasons why the kidnappers let her go he believes god protected her and she may believe this too but she also knows that she handled herself in a way that got her out of that car both and not either or During the years where you obeyed the command of the kidnappers to never tell, mm-hmm. was that difficult for you to not tell? How did that sit with you? And then, how does it sit with you now that you that you did ultimately tell your parents what had happened? It's not easy, really. It's really not easy to be open about a secret when your parents are still alive. I would feel very, very responsible. It's so funny because it, they've protected me for so long and I think there's a moment in my life that I was it was okay to to be mad at how things are and to point fingers and to some sometimes feel like a victim and sometimes feel, you know, rage. But to be completely honest now that I'm at a different moment in my life and that they're older, it would really hurt me. if i took years from their life by now knowing now i don't think that's true i think that that is just something i've learned somewhere that these truths sometimes it's very difficult to to carry them i'm no longer that kid that just wants yearning for an applause and you know for to bring them a plus grade i know that but that girl is still in me That girl is telling me that I want I want them to be happy. Right now, I don't know when this is when this is going to go out, you know, when this story is going to come out. You know, I'm still kind of like <gasps> because I am coming from a world that goes from generations behind that this is something you don't do. You do not tell these stories. You do not share secrets. because that's the way you protect legacy that's the way you keep things going moving forward and to this day Danny this is so naive of me but i still think that these guys live there and that they still have my id because th- this is the way i grew up i have tons of anecdotes of growing up this way i remember being pulled out of a beauty pageant contest like a small town the beautified and content because my dad received a call and this is a world where it is the town where there were kids if a narco would like the girl they would kidnap her and disappear there were families who moved somewhere else they would move to San Diego they would move to the states to hide from them if a guy liked a girl so this is not kind of like oh cute you know and funny for an end of a horror story like these are stories that i live I would love to say that it makes me feel like I took a, you know, weight off of me, but I don't. I don't feel that way. I don't feel that way because we are not in a different 
world. My sister still lives there. I have nieces and I have a lot of friends that live there. I'm the only one that lives outside. I'm the immigrant. I'm not first generation. I am the immigrant. This world is still part of my everyday calls. So I would feel so bad if I do anything to disrupt their peace. Does that make sense? I hear this so often from guests on this podcast. One of the most profound reasons to have a secret, to keep a secret, is that we don't want to hurt one another, especially in families. But you know where I'm going with this, and yet, and yet. After all the years of silence and the complexities of life in the city where Emma's family still lives, even though Emma's father may not be able to fully process what happened, it brings them closer together. He said things to you. I mean, you saw him cry. And the word that crossed my mind when you were describing that was you saw your father as vulnerable. Yes. And his love for you making him vulnerable, which is what being a parent does. Somebody once described it as, you know, walking around with your heart outside your body once you have children. And that's what I heard. He took my truth of what happened and what I dealt, and I, I don't think he validated it because he couldn't. Because the reality of his life and his perspective is still so, it's his truth. It's definitely his truth. And I just felt a lot of compassion for the macho culture that I've disliked for so many years. I would never see that other side before. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartMedia. Dylan Fagan and Bethann Macaluso are the executive producers. Andrew Howard is our audio editor. If you have a secret you'd like to share, leave us a voicemail, and your story could appear on an upcoming bonus episode. Our number is 1-888-SECRET-0. That's secret and then the number zero. You can also find us on Instagram at Danny Writer, Facebook at facebook.com slash familysecretspod, and Twitter at famsecretspod. And if you want to know about my family's secret, that inspired this podcast, check out my New York Times bestselling memoir, Inheritance. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet 
or the algorithm, choose them, and what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz, This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. 